Isaiah chapter 57, A Disgusting Culture is the title. And it sounds harsh, but you know, truth can be cold. And uh, the, the best thing to do is to try to be on the proper side of truth. Idolatry and its sidekick immorality is what shows up in this 57th chapter. And Isaiah is going to be hitting uh, immorality through chapter 59. It was this partic- these particular habits that we're talking about because of idolatry in chapter 57 were imported to Israel and Judah primarily um, by the people of Israel and Judah. They picked it up from the surrounding nations and they brought it home. Every nation has those who seem to be working to destroy their own country from within. Always looking for a reason to disturb the good things. Never, it's always their country that's the bad guy. Now sometimes that is true. But of course many times that is not. And this country happens to be particularly ahead of uh, the others in, in my not so humble opinion about this matter. Uh, but uh, Israel had their share of internal troublemakers, um, and America has been infested with them for quite a while now, those who want to destroy uh, everything that has actually given them any degree of success. In Isaiah's day, the promised land and its cities were polluted with idols, and not only in his day, but particularly in his day, and it will be that way up until... Jeremiah the prophet and Ezekiel Daniel. King Hezekiah and King Josiah were good kings, and they led crusades to destroy the idolatry in the land, and they had temporary success. Of course, after they passed, after they died, then their wicked uh, children came to the throne and reversed the policies and went back to their evil ways. King Hezekiah, one of the best of the kings, his father, Ahaz, was one of the worst. And his son, Manasseh, was probably the worst of them all. Manasseh gets saved in the end. He is the worst character in scripture to then get saved. Well, you know, we pray for wicked people that God would save them. Well, there's an example. But here's some background. He, He did... Irreversible damage. Second Chronicles 36, and uh, we're talking about Manasseh, the son of King Hezekiah. And Yahweh God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. And so this is God reaching out to the people through the centuries, Manasseh being one of them, Ahaz being another. These kings, they were hearing the gospel, but the people persisted in their ways, uh, determined to be like the godless nations around them, both publicly and privately. They were so into idolatry. And again, wherever idolatry shows up and and gets a a foothold, immorality is going to go with it. The same with the occult, uh, messing with the spiritual realm which is tampering with the demon, demons in the spiritual realm. And so this chapter 57 is yet another example of another Hebrew prophet, Isaiah, doing his duty, preaching, 
being the salt of the earth, uh, being one of these men that I just read about from Chronicles, that the Lord sent his prophets to his people. And we pick it up in Second Chronicles 36, 16. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh arose against his people till there was no remedy. Now, we'll get to Manasseh in a little bit. I'll, I'll come back to that. But that's just the introduction to uh, chapter 57, which will flow all the way through chapter 59. So now we look at verse 1. The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. Well, in this particular chapter, Isaiah throws at us several dual application verses, and and this is one of them. The word translated perishes in the Hebrew does not imply violence, but um, it implies premature death, early death. Not necessarily, but that's a possibility. And, and as much as Isaiah played with words and thoughts, you know, uh, you have every reason to suspect that he has got dual meanings going on here. What he, one of them is the righteous disappear. Uh, they are taken from earth. Uh, and before their natural time, and in an abstract sense, they perish, and uh, amidst the idolatry that's just going crazy in the culture, that's absorbing the culture, and the righteous are not being replaced. More righteous people are not, are not coming to the Lord. They're enjoying the, the, uh, the idolatry. They are enjoying the immorality. And by that, reducing the righteous remnant, shrinking the righteous. And if Isaiah is writing this 57th chapter in the days of Manasseh, it makes perfect sense because Manasseh persecuted the righteous. Um, so you, you have attrition and then you have persecution, uh, thinning out the righteous from, from Israel and no replacements coming in. We're, we're kind of seeing that now in America, where people just aren't interested in Scripture. Uh, you know, back in the 70s, when I, um, the early 80s, when I came to the Lord, there was a lot of people interested in Scripture. But now, they, uh, either I'm removed, too, much, too isolated, or it's not happening but there is still a lot of people, nonetheless, that, that are preaching the gospel and trying to save lost souls. Well, let's come back to Manasseh. Uh, Hezekiah's apostate son. And Second uh, Kings chapter 21, now we'll talk about him a little bit. Also, he made his sons pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of Yahweh to provoke him to anger. And then 2 Kings 21 verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So what I'm trying to establish here from this verse verse is one of the meanings about the righteous being thinned out, is persecution. If 
Isaiah is writing in the days of Manasseh. He did live in the early years of Manasseh. Uh, church or Hebrew history says that Manasseh had Isaiah stuffed into a log, and then they cut the log in two with him in it, uh, a brutal death. That's not a biblical uh, teaching, but that's what is in history and could be alluded to in Hebrews when um, the writer of Hebrews, Paul, uh, talks about some were sown in two. So society, so bad that it was, the devout, the righteous, the upright, if they were going to find peace, it would be through death, which is what some of what this verse is saying. Uh, observing all the evil around them, their souls were vexed. Well, that was the case of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, but we have no record of Lot being directly persecuted in Sodom and Gomorrah until he tried to you know, stand up and, and bring order amongst those who were uh, sexually perverted. And then they said, who does this guy think he is? Since he's been here from the beginning, he's been a, a little troublemaker. But uh, Peter says Lot's soul was vexed while he lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, it's happening here. When we see evil getting away with all of its perversities, it vexes our soul also. And we know that we're not alone. The scripture has already recorded these um, events with other righteous believers in ancient times, and we get our many of our instructions, well, we get actually all of our instructions on how to deal with these things from the Word of God. So here we are watching Isaiah deal with them, and he puts he writes about them. Uh, you know, they, the righteous could do nothing to turn back the evil in the days of Manasseh. Uh, the Only death <laughs> gave them relief. Ezekiel, 120-some years after Isaiah, he writes about those righteous belie- the believers in, in Judah who their hearts were broken over the evil and they couldn't do anything about it. And so he, ta- he gives, in a vision, he sees the Lord send out a man with an ink horn to make a mark on the heads of the righteous ones. And we pick that up in Ezekiel 9. Yahweh said to him, go through the midst of the city through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. And so, to again review the dual application that Isaiah may be using here is, one, the righteous were dying out and there were no replacements. There was, the the people just weren't interested. The second one is that uh, the righteous were being killed and there were no replacements. In both cases, the only relief they would get was death. So he says here, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil, how how they make their escape, no spiritual discernment, out of sight, out of mind, good, good that they're gone. None of the wicked missed the righteous. They were delighted. Their conscience could find relief. Well, we see that in Revelation 11. With the two, when the two witnesses are finally killed, the people are so happy to be rid of them and they're, you know, salting the earth that they start sending presents to each other. They give gifts to each other. They're so happy to be done with those Christians. Revelation chapter 11, verse 10. I'll read it because it's, it's so insightful. 
And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who were on the earth. The same way Jesus tormented the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and Sadducees through righteousness. They want a part of it. And so in evil times, death can be the only reward uh, to, to escape uh, the horrors of hell on earth. And I think that um, Isaiah has a lot of that in mind. Verse 2, he shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. So uh, far better to suffer for righteousness sake than to escape death and hardship by joining uh, the evil team. Again, I refer to Revelation 14, verse 13 this time, speaking about the tribulation martyrs, those who are killed under the regime of Antichrist. We read, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So if Isaiah is writing in the days of Manasseh and he sees the righteous being uh, martyred, murdered, he's saying, man, you know, I, I sort of envy them. They're gone. They don't have to see this nonsense, this evil that is spreading through the land. And, and I, Manasseh was king for 55 years. So that's a lot of time to do a lot of evil. And um, I, I, I think he is, my, my take on it is he's, Addressing these things. Uh, so they rested upon the bed of their graves, is the language he's using. Verse 3, but come come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Well, this is the kind of language that probably got him killed. Uh, he, my take again on the prophets is what they wrote was the product of what they were preaching. They just weren't, you know, tucked away somewhere writing things. They were preaching to people. They, they had followers. You know, Ezekiel was a big one. People would come to hear him. And uh, uh, we have no reason to doubt that this was not the case also with Isaiah. In Jeremiah's day, it, it certainly got the prophets killed. One of the prophets fled to Egypt and they hunted him down there and killed him. Well, and they would have killed Jeremiah had God not raised up protection. But here in verse 3, this is not limited to maternal sorcerers, where he says, But come, you sons of sorcerers, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Well, there was, there's again, a dual meaning. Because of the idolatry, immorality was just thriving. And there were sorcerers. There were people dipping and dabbing and practicing and devoted to uh, the occult, which is referenced here in verse 3. Now, the offspring of the adulterer, the dual meaning is, well, spiritually, they're becoming students of these sorcerers and their followers. And listen, you know, as Isaiah was preaching righteousness, well... These sorcerers were preaching their gibberish too, and people were flocking to them. But on the other side, because of the immorality that comes from the idolatry, there were literally 
adulterers and offspring from those adulterous affairs and the, the harlotry, especially the religious prostitution, was um, well received by apostate Israel. And um, th- th- this is what Isaiah certainly, uh, this is the kind of disgusting society that he was in. It gets worse. It gets far worse, as a matter of fact, and which will justify why the title is so appropriate, a disgusting culture. This is just the tip of it. But the occult always spawns immorality. They have no, they have no accountability. They create their own uh, spiritual world. And a God of righteousness, a God of the Ten Commandments is not there. There's no salt of the earth from the occult. And uh, if, if God had not intervened throughout history, humanity would wipe itself out. Idolatry is uh, man-made ideas about God, about holiness, and about worship. Sinners creating holy rules. You, you, part of a thing can't be greater than thing. They can't do it. You offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Again, the dual application to its metaphor and its and the literal. Um, the immorality producing illeg- illegitimate children and the beliefs and practices born out of um, this spiritual immoral union. In contrast to the born again. So you have these that are, are, are the spawn of the occult. Then you have those who are children of God. First John chapter 5. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. One of those verses that is worth memorizing. Uh, they're all, I mean, we all wish we could memorize the entire Bible. But we... We have to go with the ones that the Spirit just lays on our, our hearts and heads. So the sin of the land, the land of Israel, and its beginnings, uh, the beginnings of these sins with earlier generations, and now in the days of Isaiah, has matured to engulf the kingdom. By the time Jeremiah comes, it's, it's irretrievable. It's so bad. Um, a, a wicked society, incidentally, is never accidental. It's never a fluke. It's never like, huh, that just happened. Uh, Satan and his forces are systematic. They are patient. They have all the time in the world. They don't, all they have to do is gain access and they get a lot of it. Uh, Evil, advantage goes to evil. And we're called to be um, wise as serpents, as harmless as doves, we are called to be sheep thrown to the wolves in order to save souls. Verse 4, whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgressors, offspring of falsehood? I think what we're getting here is some of the, the righteous indignation of Isaiah. He's writing about, again, his, the times he's living in. He's saying, you're the wicked people and you're daring to insult the righteous? Who do you ridicule? Who do you, who do you think you're getting away with this with? Who are you to ridicule anyone? And so again, verse 4, 
Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make wide them out? Like you're so shocked. Well, we're such the bad people. Oh, I can't believe you're so homophobic. Yeah, I am. Because I've seen what you people do to a culture. Yeah, I am. Every bit of it. I am afraid of evil policies. I am afraid of policies made that are opposite God. I'm afraid of people who want to uh, trample God's definitions of righteousness, the, the scripture's definitions of righteousness, and sort of put in some, some substitute. Yeah, you, you can say, I am homophobic, and I've got good reason to be so. And if more people were, we wouldn't be in this mess that we're in now. Well, John chapter 8, before I quote that, Isaiah is saying, you people are the offspring of sin and lies. Reread verse 4. Who do you ridicule? Against whom do you make wide the mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgressors, offspring of falsehood? You're born out of things that aren't even true, but you don't care. All you want to do is attack those who give you the truth. John 8, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. See the big difference between the Christian who struggles not to sin, but sins nonetheless? Versus the one that wants to sin, doesn't want to stop, and doesn't care what uh, anybody's understanding of God has to say about it. Again, we turn to Revelation chapter 17 this time. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Yeah, I think Alexander Hislop's book, Two Babylons, is totally accurate. I disagree with those who attack it. They offer no proof. They just huff and puff. And the people that I've heard attack the book, uh, I don't find to have anything going on with them that's impressive at all. But the people who applaud the book, uh, I, I, I side with, with them, and I, I admire them, actually. Uh, he documents from historical writings the impact ancient Babylon and its occultic practice, practices have made on humanity. And so Revelation rings in on that. Revelation directly links ancient Babylon with spiritual harlotry and the abominations that flow from it. And on her forehead, as opposed to those with the mark who sigh over the evil of the land... This brazen institution on her forehead, a name written mystery, Babylon the Great, and the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. She influenced the planet. I will add, uh, concerning the mystery of lawlessness, as Paul phrased it in his letter to Timothy, um, when you look at evil and you say, this makes no sense, it's so dumb. Who would do this? Well, you're looking at the mystery Babylon, that there are spiritual forces involved. And if you have not the protection of the Holy Spirit, you are very susceptible to the influences of hell um, on very large scales. Anyway, uh, inflaming, verse 5, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valley under the clefts of the rocks. See? A disgusting culture. There's no other name for this. 
This, uh, just a brief one, the every green tree. Deities in that ancient world were regarded to, or, or thought to, some of them reside in different trees, like the oaks or the, 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 the cypress tree or a cedar, you know. They just these meaningless, baseless ideas about deity. The inflame, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green, green tree, they were passionate about their idolatry. They were engrossed in it. And the accompanying sexual immoralities that were granted by it. That's why they didn't like the God of Abraham, the God of Moses and Aaron. Too many restrictions. He's too uptight. Well, then where are you getting these children from your holotries and your adulteries? How is it you're ruining the societies you live in? You're burning down the house on your own self. As which was the case with King Omri, one of the wicked kings of the north. He burned down the house on himself. What a picture of humanity uh, shaking the puny fist against God. Out-of-control lusts which accommodate their sexual fertility rites of the Canaanite religion. In other words, this is good for humanity. We have to do the, take part in these rites so that we get rain and so that the crops will grow. This is paganism. Paganism essentially is the worship of created things. Well, we're seeing this with this, you know, uh, climate control group. They're absolutely out of their minds thinking that we're all going to be wiped out. God said, I'm not going to flood the world again, and I'm going to give you a rainbow as a promise. And when I see the rainbow, you see the rainbow, and you should know we're on the same page. But they scoff at these things. We don't. And we come along, and we say, you know, I disagree with you. I think your science is junk. I think you're lying. We find that they've been busted. That doesn't stop them, because the wicked have no shame. You'd think they'd say, yeah, you know, you got me. I was inflating the numbers. I was corrupting this stuff. I get more grants from the university when I come up with junk like this. And, uh, and speaking of the universities, Harvard, look at them. Supposed to be the smartest people in the world. And look who they put as their president. This is a disgusting culture. And Satan's at the bottom of it. And we have to say, well, what is my response in a culture that's, re- that's disgusting? Very simple. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. That's all. Don't drink what they're drinking. Don't say, I'll have what they're having. Say, I reject what they're putting into themselves. I've got something better. So uh, rampant, also in Jeremiah's day, and the prophets document these things. Nothing new under the sun. Does there need to be? Well, there will be when Christ returns. But until then... Uh, God says, you've got their number. I've given it to you. There are no new numbers coming. There's nothing new under the sun. As it was in the days of Moses, so it will be when the Son of Man returns. You should be a step ahead of them. But don't harden your heart too much. Manasseh can be saved. Slaying, he says here in verse 5, Slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. This is literal. It must have turned the stomach of Isaiah, not only to write it, but to have to be aware of it. Happening in his beloved promised land amongst the people of God. At least that was their opportunity. 
all the righteous would have been sickened. The righteous remnant in Judah at this time would have been sickened by this ancient version of Planned Parenthood. What a diabolical name Satan has made out of what sounds to be so promising. Yes, I want to plan my family. I want to plan my future for my children. Sure, come to us. We'll kill you all if we can. It's a disgusting culture. And we get people that say, oh, you can't say that. You know, where I come from, there's a word that um, a lot of people discourage their children from saying, and, and rightfully so with children. But for the adults, it's, it should be uh, right on our hip, ready to fire whenever we can. And that is the word stupid. When something is stupid, you can't say that. You have to come up with creative ways to point out evil. No, I don't. I, just, I saw these two brainiacs. I think they're conservative, uh, conservatives, political conservatives. Not so sure they're Christians. I know one isn't for sure. But anyway, they're having a discussion on what is evil. I want to throw a shoe at the television. But then I've got to pay for the television. I can, you, you don't discuss what's evil if you don't know it. You, you let someone take you by the hand and show you. Go on a tour of Walter Reed Hospital and see what happened in war to those men that are stuck in that hospital till they die. That's just one stop you can make. Uh, there's evil everywhere. And sitting down trying to have a discussion over it is almost insulting. As though we're not sure what it is. It's, evil is one of those things where if you don't know what it is, may you never have to experience it. There are darker parts of human behavior that go beyond criminal. And this is it. Slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Not only is that stupid, it's horrific. They thought this would bring them more success in their life. Well, we're offering up the most special thing we've got. Well, they sacrificed their children on stones of altars. Now, they go to clinics to do it. Under the guise of a woman's rights. Has God rights? Does God have any rights? It doesn't matter. You cannot reason. You either reach them spiritually or you separate from them. Why would the apostles say, come out, come out, be you separate, when we're supposed to be the ones going to them? Well, because there are those that was nothing we can do with. There was nothing Isaiah could do with Manasseh. Manasseh did not get saved because of Isaiah. It was a direct intervention of God, sort of like with Paul. Uh, he was conquered, and he was treated like an animal, and he came to his senses then. But there are times when uh, we face people that they're irretrievable for us, and the best thing we can do is, is just not be around them. Uh, and, you know, many of those who suffered in the imperial Japanese concentration camps, prisoner of war camps, they experienced sheer evil, and chichi, places like Chichi Jima, where cannibalism was on the menu. So let's not be silly here. Let's understand uh, what we're dealing with in this fallen world and uh, the encouragements that Christ have. They're not vain. Anyway, the worship of the Canaanite deity Molech is connected with child sacrifice. Also, Baal. So if you happen to miss out on Molech worship, well, we've got an alternative for you. Jeremiah and Ezekiel write about them. See what Satan's gods offer humanity? Offer your children up under the rocks or in some clinic. 
you teens, when you, when you come across all these names, these fake gods in the Bible, you should come away with this understanding. You should understand how many fake gods Satan has waiting for you if you take a sip from his cup. And there, the, you know, if, if you go and you look for higher learning in the universities, I encourage you to go with a chip on your shoulder. You make those professors earn your respect. You don't owe them respect. They're being paid to teach the courses you've signed up for. You, don't, you owe them nothing but love, truth, if the opportunity comes. But, you know, you go there and say, oh, they're so smart. They're so wonderful. They're so witty and, and funny. My pastor's not like that. He likes to use the word stupid a lot. You know, and then, then they, you end up drinking their Kool-Aid. I was so glad when I went to college, I had that Marine Corps trip on my, uh, chip on my shoulder, and you had to earn my respect. And there weren't, but I can remember two of them, one in accounting and one in business law. Those guys knew their stuff. All the rest of them were frauds when it came to, they were just collecting a paycheck. Anyhow, all right, I'm back. So you beyond don't you don't just don't go out there thinking that just because somebody's witty and clever that somehow God is not all that or the, we see it all the time. They, they, they attend churches like this. They love their congregation. They love their pastors. Then they go to the universities, and all the next thing you know, we're the bad guys. How'd that happen? A Kool Aid machine they got there. Archaeologists, back to Bible study. <laughs> Archaeologists. They have uh, unearthed practices in the ancient world of child sacrifice in places like Carthage in, in North, North Africa. A Phoenician colony, which the Canaanites were Phoenicians, really. They crossed over the Mediterranean, and they, they colonized the Promised Land, thus it gets its name Canaan, and then there were other areas too, such as uh, Carthage. And uh, they have found ceremonial burial jaws with children in them that, of course, they know were sacrifices. Now, you know, one of the things I've noticed about modern Bible commentators is they don't have the unction, the spiritual nerve to say something they, they, they have to present everything almost like you're a little, it's a little vague almost sometimes. Like, what are, you, what are you saying? Do you understand that the Holy Spirit fills people? Do you, can you say that when you write about him? They, they're just this, I don't want to offend anybody. Well, the other side might have a good point too. Satan has no good points. He's just evil. He's very clever. He is very skilled. But... We give him credit for nothing good. And if you don't know these things, you, you're going you're to get dumbed down. The light will be dimmed. You won't be, you know, you, you leave out of a, you know, you go to university or to the workplace, you're all happy about Jesus, and then you run into Mr. Opposition, the atheist that thinks he's got all of his arguments formulated. Pull out a pistol on him. Watch how fast he calls on God. We can't do that. <laughs> you can't go slamming his hand on the car door just to get him to admit. <laughs> he cries out, oh God, that hurt. 
<laughs> okay. So, well, they ridicule us. And I take great pleasure in ridiculing them. Because I think they're wrong. And I think that they're going to hell that if they're not careful. And I don't want them to go to hell. I want everybody to go to heaven. But it just doesn't work that way. Anyway, coming back to this, uh, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are loud in their denunciations against this offering up of children, as we should be also. Um, verse 6, among, uh, I will point one more thing. Whenever we talk about modern day uh, murder of the unborn, you, you always want to have with that the mercy of God for those who come out of it. If you've been guilty of this um, and you've come to the Lord, it's gone. He's, he's, he's forgiven you. Your sins are, are cast as far as east is from west. And you say, yeah, but I have the guilt. So wait a minute now. Paul had a lot to be guilty about before he came to Christ. And when he, because you know, the whole stoning of Stephen thing, but he, he made it work. Here's something that I have found works well against guilt and depression. Do your duty. Do your job. You won't have time for those things. You stay, if you stay, it's a harder to hit a moving target. I have found doing my duty. You, so you wake up in the morning, and I haven't had this in my 40s. You know, I used to find this stuff around. You know, like wake up, I don't want to be here. I don't feel that way now. Now it's like, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. And so, uh, anyway, even then, my response was, well, i got to get to work and dig into the scriptures, have my devotional time, my prayer time, and be the best pastor I can be, which I've succeeded at doing. It requires a tremendous amount of humility, and I've got it. Well, anyway, uh, you, you feel, you who come to church when you don't feel like it, but you're supposed to serve, or you know you're supposed to be in, in, in fellowship, that's doing your duty. Just keep it, keep doing it. You'll get better at it, and Satan will get weaker at harassing you. And a reminder, if Satan can't take you out, he'll be happy to just harass you for the, your whole life. Don't give it to him. Verse 6, among the soothsayers... I'm sorry, they're not, not, they're not saying sooth at this time. Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them you have poured a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort from these? The prophet is mocking them. From verse 6 through 13, the pronoun you is, in, is feminine singular. Because they were supposed to be the, 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 so the bride of God. They were in a covenant with him. And this is the metaphor that he's, he's using here. Uh, metaphor for Judah, Judah, the unfaithful wife and the diabolical mother. Uh, that is who she became. The stones rounded, all smoothed out because they're in the stream and the current of the water smoothed them out. Uh, and so, to the stream, let's go. Pick a handful of gods for ourselves, rock stars for ourselves. And he's criticizing their, their hateful rituals when he says, they, they are your lot. It's emphatic. <laughs> you can feel the emotion here. He said, you love them? You love those stones more than Yahweh? They, they are your gods? Keep them. That's the tone. 
And he's, he's saying you're making the pathetic and the absurd an offering to your demons. Then he says, should I receive comfort in these? Jeremiah, when, when you look at verse, let's see, I don't want to miss where I am. Jeremiah said three times in Jeremiah 5, 9, 5, 29, and, verse, and, and Jeremiah 9, 9. He repeats it verbatim. Shall I not punish them for these things, says Yahweh? And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? God is saying this is a disgusting culture. It is made so because they chose to worship false things so that they could enjoy the flesh. And in the process, they threw me away. So he says, shall I not punish them for these things, says Yahweh? And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? And he says it three times for emphasis. And now, verse 7, on a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. There's no shame where everybody can see you. Judah's field and stream of adulterous idolatry against God, which he's going to hit from verses 7 through 9. Remember, these are people sacrificing children. Let's not act like, well, you know, they just took a wrong turn. Yeah, they did. They took a lot of people with them. Here, where it says, on a lofty and high mountain. You know, Tibet's, we'll get back to this in verse 13. Tibet's beautiful landscape. I've not been to Tibet, Tibet, but um, I've almost not been to bed. Uh, but I've seen enough watching, you know, documentaries and things like that on them, exposing myself to different places in the world without having to go there and eat their food, <laughs> because I'm picky that way. Anyway, uh, they've spoiled their landscape, their beautiful landscape, with these Buddhist prayer flags and banners all over the place, used to spread the blessings and prayers, but it doesn't work. And the Chinese communists, Chinese communists coming in, taking over their land for them, demonstrating prayers aren't working here. The system's not right. What is, um, what happened? Where does this come from? Why do you believe these things? Well, you can ask, but you, doesn't mean that you, they're going to say, you know, that's a really good question. What alternative do you have? And if you present your alternative, well, you've got to confess that you are a sinner. You have nothing to offer God, but he loves you anyway. He's made a way for you to come to him. And you can't earn it. You have to receive it. And much of humanity doesn't want to hear that. Verse 8, also behind the doors and their posts, you have set up your remembrance, for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. Well, he's continuing with the theme of the uh, metaphor of, of the marriage relationship gone bad because of them. This is the pagan invasion into homes and it was willful. Shrines for household gods. Gotta have them. Spiritual infidelity violated the covenant with God. Now, Isaiah, throughout his writings, he employs 
euphemisms, dual meanings, wordplay, they're too many to keep up with. He's got some here in this verse in particular, but it's not going to improve the study if I take the time to point them out. You can get yourself a thick commentary and <laughs> you'll say, oh, look at that, he was right. And that'd be it. Verse 9, you went, but in his day, it was, it was quite, quite meaningful. You went to the, the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. Well, Sheol's the underworld, the spiritual realm. So this is all spiritual. Again, dual meanings. The idolatrous Jews did influence their kings, and the kings loved to be influenced to follow this sorcery. And then when the pressure was on, rather than turning to Yahweh, for instance, when the Assyrians came, they turned to their sorcerers and their, their false prophets. Remember, there were 800 of them on Mount Carmel when Elijah had to deal with them and call fire from heaven on his altar. The place was infested. If you had 800 prophets, how many followers did you have? For every prophet, how many followers? So the land, you know, when, when Isaiah said, how long halt you, Elijah, how long halt you between two opinions? If Yahweh's your God, serve him. If not, go serve whatever. They didn't answer. They're flat-footed. Well, let's see how this turns out. Well, it was a big slaughter that day. And the prophet mocked them every chance he got. Because that's what it called for. He wasn't being mean-spirited. They were being mean-spirited by bringing into the land and sustaining practices of religion that slaughtered the, the, the newborns. But yet, the critics will come along, oh, he's being mean, uh, and they do that to this day. Anyway, the um, alternative meaning to this verse, so verse 9, one meaning is, well, you're corrupting your kings with the sorcery. And you're going not to Yahweh, but elsewhere. Isaiah's covered that before. But the alternate uh, meaning is that the king, referred here in verse 9, is actually the Ammonite god Molech, who endorsed child sacrifice because Molech's name means king. And I think, of course, Isaiah, in the midst of this stuff, is a word, you know, he's, he's doing these word plays and these double entendres all over the place. Sheol points to the gods of the underworld, seances, things like that, which people think are cute, some people. It's nothing cute about trying to contact demons, no matter what you call them. You may think they're your relatives, but they're not. Uh, you, you know, if you want to... So, Isaiah 30, verse 1, Woe to the rebellious children, says Yahweh, who take counsel, but not of me, who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. So God was on to their motives. Yeah, you're not coming to me. So, you know, sometimes we know when someone doesn't want to come to us and ask us, hey, pastor, uh, I would like to do this and that. They don't come to us because they know we're going to take them to the scripture and that's what they don't want. So they make their move and then when it all falls apart, they still won't come to us because they're afraid we're going to say, told you so, which we would not do. Because uh, it's too serious. We don't, we're not looking to hurt anybody. But we're not going to back down from what God's word says. My point is, even Christians pull that little stunt. They want to do what God has forbidden because they want it so much. We understand that. We're not persecuting them. But on the other side, we have our duty to, to perform. Do you want pastors 
who are not looking to uphold every word out of the mouth of God without a self-righteous attitude. What is the alternative? Well, the Burger King church. Have it your way. Just anything you want, fine. As long as you put that offering in the box, we'll be here. Uh, This is all over the place. TD Fakes, look at that big church. It's Jake's. It's a shame. People go there and they think that this is the way to heaven. It's really the way to greed. And, uh, you know, you can't say anything because then you're the meanie pants. I wasn't so mean. You know, I had the same spirit before I became a pastor, but people didn't call me names. Uh, because not being a pastor, I could take them out to lunch, to lunch or dinner. <laughs> but as a pastor, oh man, it's too official. It's, it's, you know, you, you have to endorse things or at least don't attack them. And if you do, you're the best. You know when somebody leaves the church? What did you do? <laughs> no, no one says that to me, but sometimes I feel it. It's like... I didn't do anything but stood my ground the way I've been doing it for 30 years. I don't plan on changing. If they finally had a problem with it, that's on them. But don't come to me saying, Pastor, what did you do? Well, I flattened all their tires because they criticized my sermon. (laughs) Verse 10. You are wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say, there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. Man, he's got their number. Judah traveled far from God, seeking a better God. So, for Christianity, if you think that because life is tough, there's a better God, then you're doing the same thing they're doing. Life is tough because it's under the curse. We accept this. That's why we do our duty. Duty means I don't care what my mood is. I know what I have to be done, what has to be done. A mother who's nursing a child, she may not feel being in a mood. She might want to sleep. She's got to get up and do her duty. And this, uh, this is not. This actually is good for us. Anyway, uh, here they are. They've they've tried everything they can do to find satisfaction in these false religions, to the point of exhaustion in their quest, and has failed them. And yet. As he says here, yet you did not say there is no hope. You had the proof that your false gods were fake. But you did not say, man, you know, I've sinned. I need to get right again. No, you didn't do that. You doubled down. You you dug deeper into it. Knowing that idolatries, uh, the, the, the inferiority of the idolatry that you invested yourself in, the false hopes. But you're carefree about that part of it. Uh, So he says, therefore, you are not grieved. Well, being on the lying side, the side that's dishonest, it didn't cause you a problem. Years ago, there was a group of Calvary pastors that were Calvinists. And we're not Calvinists. You know, if you're a Calvinist, fine. But that's not who we are. But they stayed Calvary pastors, and they tried to steal away guys. This was dishonest behavior, deceptive from pastors. Why would you do that? Why would you have to resort to deception? I think many of them were weeded out. I don't know how many, but I, I never, I never could um, get that. You know, why would you resort to deception to convert people who have? who disagree with your position. 
Why don't you, you know, go, go elsewhere? But they, um, you know, it was very difficult. It was a very sad time. Anyway, verse 11, And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from old that you do not fear me? Verse 12, I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. Well, God says, how could you forget all that I've done for the nation? So in verse 11, he says, And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me? What makes you dishonest like this? In Deuteronomy, no less than 15 times, it's a good, take your concordance, not now, but later, and look up the word remembered in the book of Deuteronomy, and, 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 or, or, or the word mighty, and see how God is telling his people, don't forget me. Don't forget what I've done. Uh, remember who I am, who you are, and who the devil is. And, of course, they, they weren't doing this in Isaiah's day. And it, it disturbed him just as much as it disturbs us. So much of Judah's abandonment of Yahweh and devotion to the new deities was caused by fear of man. Well, they feared the Assyrians, that was one. Misplaced reverence, respecting things that weren't worthy of respect. And uh, they, they feared the non-existence gods of their imagination. Uh, anyway, is it not because I have held my peace from old that you do not fear me? Well, God says, what, because I'm showing you mercy and I'm putting up with this? You think that um, you can treat me this way? I'll not endure it forever. Paul writes Timothy and says, some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment. In other words, that guy is so bad, you know he's going to get judged. But those of some men follow later. Some get it now, some have to wait. But in both cases, um, the, God is going to deal with, he's going to deal with things in, amongst the wicked. Unbelief is a deadly drug and a soul killer. And that's what we're looking at in chapter 7. Verse 13, chapter 57. Verse 13, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you, but the wind will carry them away, a breath will take them away, but he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Well, the collection of idols, uh, they, you know, they didn't have just a few. At death... The idol always forsakes the host. Every time. The one who carried their God in their hands, their heart, and their head. Only the God of creation can carry the sinner into heaven. Listen to this, Luke chapter 16. I love this verse. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Very blunt. Just plopped him down. So the beggar, what did the prosperity teachers do with this? He struggled in his life for unknown reasons, but he goes to heaven. It profited him to not gain the world, but he gained his soul. 
But the rich guy who gained the world lost his soul. These lessons aren't to be bypassed. They're not, they're not, oh, that was, that's cute. Anyone who carries their God is not carrying a God, but is carrying a time bomb. And when death comes, that bomb goes off. That's the time it goes off. Uh, anyway, verse 14, And one shall say, Heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Sort of an abrupt change now. He moves from, he's going to get back to them, of course, but he moves here to the righteous. And this heap it up, heap it up, is get busy. Remove the obstacles of unbelief and disobedience. This is the counter move, to counter all that he's been talking about. Ephesians 4, why did God give pastors, evangelists, and apostles and prophets to the church? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ, to heap it up, to build it up. Jude, verse 20, you, beloved, but you, that's disjunctive is important, it separates, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion or insanity amongst the righteous. He's the cure. So if you say, well, I just lost control, it wasn't the Holy Spirit. Because we don't lose control. We gain. We gain control by coming to the Lord, by being in the Spirit. Now, there are times that God gives us a little liberty. We can just, you know, sing with emotion but not out of control. Because that then brings a lot of other problems. One of them is you become the center of attention, not God. Um, Anyway, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Man, what a bunch of doctrine is packed into that. All of it good. Isaiah's view of God. Then I saw the Lord Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Well, this is what he's saying in contrast to those who are sacrificing their children, who are going down to the stream to get stones to worship, to build little shrines for themselves. And this is... Um, This is the side we want to belong on. Lofty. The realm of God. Not a physical distance. Like God is so high up. You know, it's like, you know, 10 million miles. No. It's, 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 he is above us. The created world. Uh, God transcends creation. He goes beyond it. And we call it glory. Anyway, the eternity that he speaks up here is without beginning, without end. It is the meaning of the Alpha and the Omega. I am without beginning. I am without end. As far back as you can go to the beginning uh, and then beyond, I'll still be there. And that's going forward too. Whose name is Holy. Well, because his being is holy. His character is righteous when he interacts with, with created beings. But if he had no created beings, he'd still be holy, pure, uh, uh, he'd be perfect, and he'd be powerful. Uh, he doesn't need anything 
to, to influence his holiness. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble heart, a humble spirit. This is communion. Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Well, that's good doctrine right out of Isaiah. To revive the spirit of the humble. Well, God resists the proud. In, in Psalm 138, he, he, he says this about God concerning the proud. He regards the lowly, but the proud, he knows afar off. He can see them a mile away. And you, for us, we get that with experience and age. We be, our perception develops. We can see, we can smell a rat a lot faster when we get older than when we were younger. As, as a rule, James 4, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, so without, without humility, Lucifer turned into the first idolater, the first known sinner of creation, the first liar. He lied. Who did he lie to first? Himself. He told himself that he was like God. I mean, so he had an identity problem. He wanted to identify with God. I identify as God. God said, no, you don't. You're a devil. And that was that. that, was that. Verse 16. For I will... Almost done. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. So God says without mercy, everybody would perish. There's, there is mercy. But there's judgment. And Isaiah is talking about these habits and Practices that are going to be judged. Verse 17. For the iniquity of the covetedness, of his covetedness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. And this is Judah. It already, Israel, the northern kingdom is already gone. He's preaching to Judah. Well, all the people in the past really of, his, of the promised uh, of the people of God. Verse 18, I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. Well, we know that's going to happen. He's talking about the Jewish people. Uh, Zechariah talks about, then they will see the one whom they pierce and they will weep as for an only begotten, as for an only son. Uh, so this is going, is yet to be fulfilled. Verse 19, I create the fruit of his lips Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says Yahweh. I will heal him. Well, the New Testament, Paul says, and he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who were near. So Paul is saying, Gentile and Jew alike, God wants to save people. He wants them in heaven. And so our uh, he charges us with this, Ephesians 6.15 having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And that's what verse 19 is all about, peace that God is looking for. Verse 20, But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Verse 21, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Well, that's an undesirable outcome, both to God and to the righteous. Uh, close with Jude 13. Speaking about the wicked, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. 
In other words, God's not going to reward, reward satanic behavior. Let's pray. Our Father, this evening, we ask that you um, minister to us from your word. If anything, we've received this evening. And we ask that you get us all home safely. In Jesus' name, amen.